Well, take your copy of God's Word and let's open it to Daniel chapter 1. Today we're going to talk about faith and culture. Subtitle, No Compromise. Something we certainly need to hear today. As a matter of fact, Daniel 1 in its entirety is about faith and culture. Let's read the text before us, beginning in Daniel chapter 1, verse 1 down through verse 7. Are you ready for the reading of the Word? Amen. This is what God has to say to us today. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judea, of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. When I think of these four Hebrew teenagers, Psalm 1 immediately comes to mind. Doesn't I believe Daniel wrote Psalm 119. That's my belief. But I think Psalm 1 is really what's going on behind the scenes in the lives of these four Hebrew teenagers. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of the sinner, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight shall be in the Lord's instruction. And in his law does he meditate day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by rivers of water, and whatsoever he does, it shall prosper. Those three verses, to me, speak, of, of course, of a man who is not enticed. A man or a woman who is not seduced by the advice of the wicked. We don't stand in the counsel of the ungodly. But our delight is in the instruction of the Lord. Did you know that we all have what's called a world view? Do you all know what that is? Raise your hand. If you at least kind of know where I'm headed with this. Uh, there's an, I don't think you can find seven verses in the Bible that kind of set the stage for how you think. What's your purpose? Uh, is God in control? Notice it says that God gave them into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. God is behind the scenes working all of this according to his sovereign plan. So a worldview. You, everybody in this building, no matter your age... You have a particular way of looking at life. You have a particular way of seeing life and the world to which we live in. Here's a definition of a worldview. 
A worldview is a comprehensive view of life through which we think, understand, and judge, and which determines our approach to life and to meaning. A worldview is reflected by one's answers and or responses to certain questions. For instance, who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? What's life all about? Is there a God? What are good and evil? Today, I hope you realize this, we live in a post-Christian context with an increasingly non-Christian secular worldview that's always before us. You need only look at the news. You need only to look normally between MSNBC and Fox to think about a gigantic gap in thinking. Now, there's stinking thinking on both sides. We get that. We know that biblically. But however, there's still certain issues that we look at and we know full well, no matter what you're looking at, that the Word of God says one thing and our culture says another. Well, your worldview is so vitally important. There's a pressure. There is pressure from every direction to force us to conform to the mindset and to the spirit of this age. Did y'all know this challenge is not new? Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah had the exact same set of challenges in their day. And as a believer, folks, I'm encouraging you. I'm begging you. If you're saved by grace through faith and you know the Lord, you need to be prepared for the challenges in this non-Christian culture that we live in. You need to be challenged. You need to be informed and prepared to know exactly what you believe. And so it's important. Now, is Daniel an individual that we can learn from as an example and follow? Yes, he is. But I want to remind you that it's very easy to read the Word of God in such a way that you drain it from its redemptive and God-centered purpose. What do I mean by that? Well, you can easily be a moralist and look at Daniel's life and say, Well, I'm going to be a Daniel, so I'm going to eat broccoli. I'm going to be a vegetarian. Well, I'm just telling you that's not going to get you to heaven. You can do moral things all day long, but the real issue is that we have to know Jesus as Lord. We have to be saved by grace through faith. Why? Because we're sinners. Just because you're a moral person doesn't mean you're going to heaven. The fact of the matter is, we're all sinners in need of the Savior. So it's easy to look at the heroes of the Bible and seek to mimic their behavior, and you miss it. Daniel was a vegetarian, I'll be a vegetarian. I'll dare to be a Daniel and eat broccoli. Folks, that's the worst form of moralism. We don't want to be mere moralists that reduce the Bible down to examples that need to be followed. Even your liberal eggheads out in the world say that Jesus, he's a good example. He was a good teacher. But they will deny that he's God, and that he conquered death, and that he paid for our sins, and that he came forth from the grave. So, moralism won't save you. Don't reduce the Bible down to that. However, there are heroes in the Bible for a reason. There are positive uh, examples of heroes who live for Christ. There's an entire chapter, pretty much, called Hebrews 11 that talks about that. And there are also, negatively, uh, there's the scope of uh, villains that we see in the Word of God. However, all of them God uses to teach us the redemptive plan and what God is about to do in, in redemptive history. So, Paul also reminds us in 1 Corinthians 10 that the Israelites were actually a negative influence. And we need to look at that example so that we don't go down the same road. You ever read those verses? 
Chapter 10, verse 6 reminds us that these things were written, that we would not follow the evil desires of the Israelites. So Daniel points us to God. And Daniel is a model of faith for us. The chapter illustrates for us that there have always been pressures upon the people of God to compromise their faith. And today, let's talk about what Daniel faced. I'm almost embarrassed to tell you, but I really only have one major point. And you know me well enough to know there'll be some additional things there and some application at the end. But here it is. In our culture, we will face the pressure to compromise our faith. Everybody can wrap their minds around that one, right? Because no matter your age... Uh, you're living, for the most part, in places where you sense the pressure. So verses 1 and 2, again, we had an introduction last week. If you missed that, please go back and listen to it because introductions are important to books. Go back in uh, podcast, uh, CD, whatever you need to get that one. And I'm not going to labor this a whole lot, but verses 1 and 2 sets the context. It was a bad year for Jerusalem, wasn't it? Verse Verse 1 describes it. When one studies the kings and their genealogies, you'll find that we only had a few good kings. Jehoiakim would not qualify as a good king for no reason at all. The normal epitaph for the kings in the Bible would be that they did evil in the sight of the Lord. When you hear the word Jehoiakim, do you think good or bad? Well, you think bad. You really do. He's actually the persecutor of Jeremiah. Did you all know that? In the book of Jeremiah, so not a good dude at all. He was a tyrant. He was foolish. And you can read about that in 2 Chronicles 36 and 2 Kings 24. But Daniel tells us that this took place in the third year of his reign over Judah. Nebuchadnezzar came and besieged Judah. And there's actually three stages of this destruction and or deportation. The first one was in 605, of which Daniel was a part of. But there'll be another one. And then in 586, there'll be the complete destruction of Jerusalem. So in essence, there's three invasions by the Babylonians. Incidentally, Jehoiakim was a descendant of King David. Wow, that kind of hurts, doesn't it? It's not only a bad day for Jerusalem, it's a bad day for the king as well because he's given into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar's not a good guy either. He's an egomaniac, he's a dictator, and he's trying to take over the entire world. Jehoiakim actually becomes what's called a vassal king under Nebuchadnezzar. He doesn't just kill Jehoiakim, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't, and wipe him out. He actually uses him, and Jehoiakim bows to him and says, I will just rule under your sovereign oversight. Under normal situations, we would call that a traitor. But that's what he does. Actually, Jehoiakim has a desire to overthrow Nebuchadnezzar, but it's never going to take place. It's also a bad year for the house of God. Bad year for Jerusalem. Bad year for the king. Bad year for the house of God. Why? Because the Bible says that Nebuchadnezzar took the vessels from the house of God and took it to Marduk. Took it to a false god. A Babylonian chief god. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar was saying, your God may be one thing, but my God is greater. And I've just taken all of your vessels that you seem to think are so wonderful, and I've transported them, and I've taken them to a, and put them in my temple. And remember what happened to the ark once it was taken in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 5? The Philistines come, and they take, a, take the ark, and they put it in the temple of Dagon. Boy, that's a bad mistake. Y'all remember that story? 
They come out one day and Dagon is face down. Big old uh, statue and idol is just face down out in front of the temple. They prop him back up. You know, that's what you really do with gods because they're not real. You have to prop them up, right? And then they come out the next day and he has no hands and his head is chopped off. Man, that was a bad day. Talking about a bad day for Dagon, right? The fact of the matter is, Dagon ends up paying the price. By the end of chapter 5, they take the ark to different places, and every time they take it somewhere, God begins uh, to bring curses upon the people. So finally they say, we're taking that thing back to Jerusalem. And they do. They take it back. So here they take these objects that would have been used in Israelite worship to Yahweh God, and they take it back to their temple and treasury. And his basic worldview was that his god, Marduk, Nebo, or Baal, was so much stronger than Israel's god. So I will give it to my god for a gift. And you know, God's not really happy when his possessions are, are robbed and he's blasphemed uh, against his own name. And this seems as if the false gods of the world have prevailed. The power, it seemed that the world power, uh, that Judah had lived in fear for so long, but yet God had kept her safe, now comes in and sacks the city. How would you feel? It was not only the capital city, it was the sacred city. The temple was there. If the temple is there, that means what else is there? The presence of God. So this is God's city. It's God's country. It's God's people. And Nebuchadnezzar's guilty from a Jewish perspective of defiling God's temple. Babylon is now here, and your city has been diminished. And it's being diminished second by second. Now, if you were a faithful Jew and you believed in God, what would you say at this point? You'd probably agree with Habakkuk. Where's God in all of this? Right? Just imagine if, it, if in our day the most evil country on the planet, with little or no effort, just stopped by Washington. And they said to our president, we're taking over. And our president bowed down to him. Could you imagine this? Could you imagine him saying, yeah, sure, go ahead and take Ben Franklin's desk. Go ahead and take the Declaration of Independence. Then all of a sudden, we're occupied by foreign troops. By the way, that could happen if God allowed it. I want to remind you, if he did it to Jerusalem, he can do it to us. Just think about it. Would we not say, why in the world would God let this happen? Habakkuk, another prophet, minor prophet, actually asked that very question. God, I know we're bad. But we're surely not as bad as those wicked Babylonians. That's exactly what he says. Well, to even ask the question misses something crucial in our passage. God not only allowed it to happen, he actually did it. God delivered Jerusalem and Jehoiakim into the hands of Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Nebuchadnezzar thinks his God is bigger than Yahweh. Why would God do this? It's very simple. This was God's final act of covenant, covenant judgment against their recalcitrant, rebellious thinking and people who disobeyed God. And they continually defiled Him, although they said they were in a covenant relationship with Him. And God says, I'm going to discipline you if you disobey me. You can read this in Deuteronomy chapter 28. If His people would not be faithful to Him, God promises that He will curse them and lo, it has happened. He has delivered them into the hands of the Babylonians. Now, in verse 3, it gets worse. We see the first deportation. The Bible says, Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel. 
both of the royal family and of nobility. Now, we might call Ashpenaz the prince of the eunuchs, of course, as the text says, but we also may call him the dean of the students. Any of you ever been to college? That means yes, that means no, right? So here's this guy that's really the dean of the students. He's in charge to gather some of the youth for service. He's to take them back to Babylon. Jewish tradition says that these were taken as descendants from King Hezekiah that Daniel just mentioned in the song. Another question comes up at this point. If he was the chief of the eunuchs, did he make them eunuchs? Jewish tradition says yes. Isaiah 39, verse 5. Mark this and listen. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up to this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Pretty clear, isn't it? Now, do we know absolutely for sure that Hananiah, Mishael, Nazariah, and Daniel became eunuchs? No, we don't know that for sure, but it sure does sound like it. Right? That God is saying this is what was going to take place. So here's this deportation. And here, low in verse 5, 4 and 5, youth without blemish of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge. Without reading that again, let me just remind you that Nebuchadnezzar has an agenda. And the world, the flesh, and the devil all have an agenda against you. So Nebuchadnezzar has an agenda. He wanted specific kinds of people, men, young boys, nobility, royalty, taken back to Babylon. So when you think about verse 4, you quickly understand how brilliant Nebuchadnezzar was. You weaken your enemy and Jerusalem by weakening the cream of the crop. You weaken Jerusalem and the people of God by taking the brightest and brainwashing them and giving them a Babylonian education. I want to remind you that Nebuchadnezzar was not the last one who saw the molding of college education in order to recruit unto his agenda. Don't be foolish, people. This is happening in our world every single day in college universities. College and universities. Every single day. The spirit of a reprogramming agenda is alive and well in our day. It's alive and well in American colleges and universities. And Daniel and his friends were probably 13 to 16 years of age. Now, would you say that that's a highly impressionable age? As a matter of fact, when our kids start to go off to middle school, we're like freaking out, aren't we? Oh, we're like, can this kid handle this? Can they handle going to a school when they're 12, 13, and 14 years of age, pre, say, high school? Can they handle this? And it scares us to death. Notice it says they have no blemishes. Do you know that sacrificial language? Now, if you were one of the young men hanging out in Jerusalem, you'd be thanking God if you had a couple of pimples on your face. Amen? <laughs> Bring on the acne if you're trying to deport us to Babylon. But the fact is, you, uh, they were looking for people. Uh, someone that is broadly intelligent is the best way to explain it. Do you think they had a Babylonian SAT or ACT? that they had to work up and do? I mean, there's got to be some kind of way that they tested them 
to find out the cream of the crop, there was a standard that was expected in decorum and in behavior and in conduct. And they had to be good looking. Look at me, girls. Y'all like to find a guy like that, wouldn't you? I mean, think about that. Good looking, no blemishes, smart as a whip, great decorum. <laughs> Some of you girls are saying, they don't exist in our day, right? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, he wants the best looking and the brightest to get him into his courts for service. What happens to a culture when their best and their brightest are ripped out of the heart of the culture? Well, this is Nebuchadnezzar's military plan. He wants to take the nationality away from the people by acculturation. Bring them into the life of his society. And if he changes their understanding in the way they think, he'll change the way they behave. That's what's killing American Christians today. we got wrong thinking. We don't have a correct worldview at all. And some of them are teenagers today who grew up in Baptist churches like ours. And we failed to teach our kids the truth. The absolute truth of the Word of God. Okay. It says they were educated. Did y'all see that? Not only the deportation, but the education. They were to be educated in the language and literature of the Chaldeans. First, they would have to learn Akkadian, which was the language of ancient Babylon. You didn't, it didn't have characters like Hebrew. Now, Hebrew, folks, is written right to left. That'll blow your mind already. And to, know, and, and to be able to translate, you've got to know vowel pointings in Hebrew. Right to left. That's difficult enough. But just say you were beginning to learn a language by hieroglyphics. It was cuneiform. And that's what these guys had to learn in order to learn the language. In other words... This group would have had instilled in them the Babylonian world view by their language, the Babylonian perspective of religion, uh, philosophy, divination, and magic. It was a three-year program. That's a long time, isn't it? Master's level. I don't know why some of you teachers can get a one-year master's. It took me three years, right? Well, see, that's, that's what's going on here. Three full years. The goal was simple. If we get them to think like Babylonians, they will live like Babylonians. It was a simple agenda. If they get our educational system instilled into them, they will think like Babylonians and live like Babylonians. Nebuchadnezzar was not the last one to recognize the power of education. Are y'all getting this? Deportation education. Number three, how about a meal program? You ever had one of those at college? Most of them stink, right? Of course, if you can run by Chick-fil-A, right? When Timothy was UAB, he could go to Chick-fil-A and get him a Chick-fil-A sandwich. Talking about putting a godly place in the midst of a campus like UAB that claims to be the most diverse campus in the world. Anything you believe, you can believe anything you want to at that place. It was probably about like the University of Babylon. Sorry to say that to anybody from Alabama who would listen to this sermon, but it's absolutely the truth. And they know it. So the meal program. It's pretty awesome, right? The meal programs at my first college were pretty lame, to say the best. To say the least, they were terrible. Well, that's why I took my lunch, right? Fixed my own stuff, ate my own sandwiches. Well, this, this program had the choicest food that you could ever imagine and all you could drink. This would have even made the best universities envious that have the best food. Okay, now 
The choice that these guys made not to partake, I don't think that it was because the food wasn't kosher. I think you push it too far if you say that. Neither do I think it was because the food had been offered up to an idol. Is that possible? Well, according to Jewish law, yes, you would not eat that. But I don't think that's the case. I think their stand against eating was more against the acculturation process. I think if you study, you'll find that I'm right. It was more than just, it was more about not just the education, but the total inserting them into a particular lifestyle. Now think with me. It was the allurement of a lifestyle of pleasure. It was the best of the best to drink or eat and all you wanted to eat. Sinclair Ferguson, a great expositor of the word, says this in his commentary. High living very easily masters the senses and blunts the sharp edge of young Christians. The good life that Daniel was offered was intended by the king to wean him away from the hard life to which God had called him to. He knew what it was like to live meagerly in Judah. And now all of a sudden he had the richest and the choicest lifestyle right in front of him. It was another part of the orientation of the life of Babylon. We need to be real careful, folks, when we get lured into the best that the world can possibly offer and we're willing to spend all we possibly can spend to get it. We need to be careful, don't we? Next, they got their names changed. Now, in Jewish culture, you choose your names carefully. Don't you? Now, you wanted... The truth of God reflected in the kid's name. That's why they named them what they named them. So children were given names that are names of God. Daniel's mom and dad, when he was born, gave him the name, My God is Judge, or Daniel. Pretty awesome, isn't it? Daniel. You think Daniel tried to live up to that name? That I must live under the fact of the watchful guy of Yahweh God, and he is ultimately my judge. Well, when you read about Daniel, you would have to say, yes, he lived like this. When his three friends were brought into this world, Hananiah's parents named him, the Lord is gracious. Mishael named his, they named him, who is what God is. And Azariah's parents named him, the Lord is my helper. So why change their names? Incidentally, they give them awful names, don't they? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Belteshazzar. What names? Well, the names they receive revolve around the gods of Babylon. Baal, Marduk, and Nabo. Babylonian deities. Why change their names? Well, if they can change their names, you can try to change their identity. Y'all getting this? And if you change their names, identity, change their names, and you can get them... To forget about their heritage and their lineage and who they belong to. If your name was my God is judge all your life and now it becomes Baal is my protector. Over a certain amount of time you begin to lose your sense of identity. That was the goal. You forfeit your roots. You forfeit your heritage. They wanted to take their identity away and give them a new culture. Erase your religious identity and give you a new one. Now, we may not see names as that significant anymore, but there certainly is a grand effort in this world to change your identity. Amen? I'm going to start over if you don't respond, right? The goal was total 
acculturation and re-education. Now think about these terms that you see here. Isolation. They were taken out of their homeland and placed in Babylonian culture. How about indoctrination? All the ways of the Babylonian culture, religious education, whole nine yards. Compromise. Just, just give a little bit. Just give a little bit in what you do versus your identity. And then confusion. Well, I've just explained to you the normal orientation day at many, not all, but many of the universities in our world. Y'all do know I just explained to you. I went to one. I went to two, probably, and listened. And all, all of these things were there. Almost to the point of saying this, and some of them do. Just go ahead and cast off all you've learned as a kid. We are smarter than your parents, so forget all that they taught you. By the way, the compromise part of this agenda is very important. Do y'all know that? You must get someone to compromise before the steps of acculturation will work. Why? It's because the way we think is profoundly impacting the way that we live. And the way we live is impacted by the way we think. So, if you begin to make moral compromises, you will soon be imbibing on indoctrination. That's why when kids go off to school, the first thing that happens is they're not drinking one beer, but two, but three, and four, and five. Then they're drunk every night, and then they're going uh, to fentanyl or whatever else they're doing. And, and you say, well, what happened? Well, it's the compromise. It's the slide. And then all of a sudden, there's this indoctrination, and there's this throwing off all restraint, and they're forgetting their identity. If they ever belong to God in the first place. Because I will tell you, if you belong to Jehovah God, then He is going to beat the fire out of you when you start down that slippery slope. Now, folks, we miss that, don't we? We sometimes just think that, well, they just, they're just in a backward spiral, uh, and they know the Lord, and they're going to come back to the Lord. We pray they do, but I'm telling you, the Lord disciplines those He loves. And if you belong to the Lord, you will get chastisement, you will get scourging, just like these kids got. Well, not them, but the, 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 the people who made the decisions are in captivity. Why? Because they disobeyed the Lord. You need to be thankful for the scourging and the discipline that God will call him. God doesn't whip Satan's children, but he whips his, right? He gets your attention. So one of two things is, ha is happening in our world today. Kids are, we're playing just as I am. They're coming as they are, and they're leaving as they were. There's no change. Or they're really saved and they're going off to these schools and God is going to get a hold to them. And that's what we hope. That's what we pray. That they genuinely belong to the Lord and all of a sudden they're going to wake up and figure out their identity. So if you change thinking, if you change behavior, if you change their loyalties and you change their identities, you've got them. So we say welcome to Babylonian Orientation Day. Here are two things I don't want you to miss, and I'm done. Are you ready? The fact that we live in this culture is no accident. Now, we like to whine and complain, don't we? Boy, I wish I lived 40 years ago when all we could watch on TV was Barney and Andy. And I love it. I, we've watched every episode of Barney and Andy. I can't tell you how many times. I know all of them. If you want to talk to me about them, I can probably tell you every one of them. But do you see that being in Babylon was no accident? Read it again. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. God 
was in control, even in the midst of sin, the sin of the people. And But God also works to scatter the people into a pagan land. God is responsible for salvation. God is responsible for Nebuchadnezzar hitting his knees and acting like a wild animal when you get in chapter 2. God is responsible for those things. God has the ability to get the gospel to all nations. And God will do it. And here's God, the awesome God of the universe, even in this culture, being willing to put his own people. uh, It's really an invasion of the people of God into enemy territory. God put the best and the brightest those who are going to teach and live the Word of God right in the midst of the wicked culture so that God would shine the brightest in that dark place. God did that. So the fact that they were there and had the temptations was not an accident. I'm I'm telling you, folks, the the temptations that we see today, the advertisements, the TV shows, the way we dress, that's kind of weak. The way we act isn't any wonder That we're constantly having to keep a covenant with our eyes. David said that. Keep a covenant with your eyes. You know, some of you men have the attitude, well, I can look at the menu as long as I don't order. Really? Really? When David would say, keep a covenant with your eyes, you better watch your heart. The amount of temptation. All the things that we see in this world today, folks, it's not an accident that you're, if you're saved, it's not an accident that you live in this world today. And God intends for you to be salt and light. God intends for you not to allow this culture to take away your identity. God intends for that to take place. So no matter how horrible the situation looked, God was in control. What gives the entire scene hope and not utter despair is a theological worldview. Remember that? That knows that God's hand is in all of this. God is is in control. God will keep his faithful ones faithful. And he will. And he does. So it was no accident that Nebuchadnezzar sought to besiege Jerusalem. It was no accident that Jehoiakim was a traitor. It was no accident that Jerusalem would ultimately fall. It was no accident that these men were deported into Babylon. It's no accident that they would be acculturated and educated in Babylonian ways. This was God's plan. He governs all things according to the counsel of his will. Now the question is, are they going to stand? And verse 8 is next week, right? And we get to see what they do. Number two, the pressure to change a person's way of thinking by re-education and acculturation and seduction is an effective tool to rob God's people of the next generation. Are we not living in that today? Just read Judges chapter 2. After the death of Joshua, there arose a generation who did not know the Lord. Joshua was 110 years old, and he reminded the people, choose this day whom you're going to serve. Man, it was a snap of the fingers. And the next generation did not know the Lord. Why? Because that generation before them did not keep his mighty works before them. We've got to rehearse the mighty works of our God. We've got to remind the people of the cross of Christ and, and living for Jesus. So this pressure is there. It's an effective tool for robbing God's people of the next generation. The reality is this doesn't just apply to our kids in college, right? The reality is this challenge is before all of us in the midst of this culture to walk by faith and not by sight. For us all, every one of us, to live. We live in a world that is hostile to the things of God and to Christ. How are you going to live? That's the question. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, it's a very relevant question, isn't it? 
Will you remember in this world that God is sovereign and faithful? Will you be still and know that He's God? When we focus on what He is like and who He is, we will in turn be faithful and we will be strong. Or will you allow this culture to squeeze you into its mold? That's the JB translation of uh, Romans 12 too. And do not be conformed to this world. JB translation. And do not allow this world to squeeze you into its mold. Will we allow this world to squeeze us into its mold? This is an issue that every singer, single follower of the Lord Jesus Christ must answer. Everybody in this room. Do you see the strategies around you? And are you prepared? If not, then you are more a part of the Babylonian culture than you really realize. The God of Daniel proves to be faithful, does he not? To these young men. And it's his faithfulness to them that empowers them to be faithful to him. Even in your temptations, if you read 1 Corinthians 10, that we are tempted at every point. But God is faithful. That with the temptation, who's faithful? Not you. God is faithful with the temptation to give you a way of escape. God is the one who is faithful. When you get to chapter 5, I hate to steal my own thunder. Belshazzar has some handwriting on the wall. And his therapists say to him, now this is a lot of years later. Nebuchadnezzar's off the scene. And his therapists say to him, there is one among us who was named Belshazzar. That's real name it's Daniel. Now, I want to ask you a question. How did this therapist know to remember the Hebrew name of Daniel? I'm telling you. Are you awake? He did not lose his identity. Even though he bore that Babylonian name, everybody knew his name was Daniel. My God is judge. Hey, when you get to chapter 6, Darius, he doesn't want Daniel to die, does he? Man, he wakes up early in the morning... And he runs to the den and he's hollering out, say it, Belteshazzar? No, Daniel, did your God save you? Isn't that awesome? He remembered him by his identity. Folks, you can do it. I know this world is rough. It's rough on pastors. It's rough on everybody. But I'm telling you, God placed you here for a reason. In this culture, it's not an accident that you were born and you're living today. It's certainly not an accident that God saved you by grace through faith. And He's left you alive. Otherwise, He would have just killed you and took you to glory. But you're here for a reason. And it's not to take up space. The reason you're here is to make an impact in this culture for Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Just excited, Lord, to read about four Hebrew teenagers that live for Christ. God, would You bless Ozark. Lord, would you bless LifePoint, Selmore, First Baptist Ozark, Hopedale. Lord, all the churches in our area, would you bless them with teenagers who are willing to stand for Jesus. That are not worried about the culture and what it can do to them. They're worried about how they can go into enemy territory and make an impact for Jesus. God help us. Not only for our teenagers, but what about us as adults? Have we allowed this culture to blind us from our identity of belonging to Jesus? 
God help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.